0: All right, well, we're in a new series now called Conversation Killers. It's an apologetic series, and apologetics is the um, learning how to share your faith in a way that promotes dialogue, learning how to talk to people about your faith with uh, grace and truth, with courtesy and kindness. Instead of just firing off four Bible verses at a person and thinking that that's all you have to do, apologetics is a way of asking questions and finding out What do other people believe? How can I interact with them in a way that shows the love of Christ while holding firmly to the the truths found in the Bible? So... Uh, I hope that you want to learn how to do better at talking to other people. Let's face it; in our world today, we're really terrible at talking to each other. Am I right? Just the hysteria, or or just the we're gonna you know cancel people and freeze them out for life. Despite the fact that we have more communication tools at our disposal than ever before, I feel like communication has become super unhealthy. So, as Christians, here's what we're saying: we have to get better. Am I right? And so we've got this series called Conversation Killers, and it aims to help you prepare for what happens if somebody says something that really ends a conversation, a good conversation, and you want to keep that conversation going. I want to mention also that when it comes to hot-button issues or big objections to our faith, we want to lean into these things to learn how to have good spiritual mature conversations without kind of ruining the reputation of Christ in the process. So you may have heard this past week, for example, but uh, on Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, I know that there's a lot of joy in the church over that. We've talked in the past about our uh, the biblical view of sanctity of life, but here's the thing. I see this as a tremendous opportunity to have good conversations about the value of life. It's also an opportunity to really wound and injure some hearts in the process of not having good conversations. Please check our Facebook page today, because last year I preached a sermon on how you can have conversations about the sanctity of life with other people in an edifying way. Do you know a lot of Christians don't know how to talk about life from a biblical standpoint? For example, do you know how to defend the view that life begins at conception, even if there isn't even a heartbeat yet, that that's a human life? Do you know what to say if someone's like, well, there's not even brainwaves yet? Do you know what to say? In the sermon we're going to post from last year on Facebook today, it'll get you ready for those conversations that might come up. I want you to have confidence talking about life so that when you have those conversations, you're not caught off guard and you're not saying things that are perhaps hurtful to other people. So this is kind of the the vein of where we're going. How can we talk about these things? This year, this series, the, the specific focus is the top objections to our faith. We're going to cover two today. One of them is, Christians are hypocrites. Christians, that's you, are hypocrites. Why would I want to be around those people? And we're tying that into when people say, I'm a pretty good person. How do we continue the conversation when maybe God isn't the problem, maybe the church is the problem, and people don't even want to talk about Christianity because of the Christians. Um, They act so perfect. Some of the worst people I know are Christians. They think they're better than everyone else. Huge issue. Huge issue and a huge conversation killer. Here's the thing, there's a lot of ammunition that people have to reach for. You know, just look at all the sin that's found in the church. Just look at the sin, the abuse, the sexual sin. Look at the drama. Look at the church splits. Look at the theft, the division, the false accusations of good leaders. Look at all of the drama. And so what do we say when people are like, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, all right? Now that's you. They're pointing at you and saying your morals are the problem. But then they might point at themselves and be like, but I'm a good person. I'm a good person. How do we then, you know, keep the conversation going if they say that? Let's pray, and then we'll learn how to have conversations about these two uh, topics. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you want us to love you with all of our mind. Because of that, we want to have clear thinking. We also want to have compassionate hearts. So when issues like the sanctity of life comes up, or, or when someone has a problem with the church, maybe they've been hurt by the church, uh, or they feel like they're good enough to get into heaven, Lord, we don't want to crush these people or destroy them, and and, uh, we want to have a a loving, compassionate, kind conversation that steers them to the person of Christ. So teach us how to do that today, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You can open up to Revelation 3, verse 1, and I've got a few passages today. Sometimes you have a great conversation with people, and you can actually camp on these topics for a little while. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, and the first objection you can write down is this Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. What do I do if, if somebody says that, a coworker? What do I do if my child says that and they're walking away from the Christians are just hypocrites? Well, when it comes to this problem, the Bible is very aware of this reality. That some people who claim to be Christians or who participate in church fellowship um, are not living it out. There was a church in Sardis, and Revelation 3, Jesus is addressing this church in Sardis. This is a place you can go. If you've got time and they're really willing to talk about it, say, hey, you know what? Let me read something to you from Revelation 3. Uh, It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, that's Jesus, I know your works. Jesus knows each person's works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Maybe they're faking it. We don't, they, they, people think they're alive, but they are not. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You see Jesus here keeping track of what a person is saying and what a person is doing, what a whole church is saying and what people are saying about them, but what they're actually about. He is very closely monitoring that discrepancy. Remember then what you've received, verse 3, and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. There's a threat here. Jesus is threatening to destroy this church. Yet you've still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, for they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That means they haven't fallen in to sin that discredits the gospel. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A little bit we can unpack here. Sardis, twice in its history, got destroyed. Why? Because the watchman on the walls failed to keep watch. Here's a picture of the ruins of ancient Sardis. Uh, The wall, you can see how there were these towering cliffs. And so some of the most impregnable parts of this city were high up in a place where they felt secure. They had walls that would ring these cliffs. Um, Some of them were from later in the medieval times. But here's another picture. And the city was real glorious in in, uh, Jesus' day. So this city felt strong. They felt protected. But twice in their history, they were (coughs) asleep to their peril and they got blown up twice it happened in 546 and in 214 bc so they became kind of a uh, a troubled tale of don't do what they did don't feel like you're super secure and then suddenly like a thief in the night your city is destroyed do you know that that's a picture of what will happen to hypocrites people who say they're christian people who claim to be alive spiritually but they are not, not living it out they are asleep to the great peril. Oh, they may feel like they're high and mighty and surrounded by walls, but guess what? God himself will destroy that person. So what do we say when people are like, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites? Well, God's pretty upset about the problem too. He's threatening this church that had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. I like what Herb Cain said, a legendary San Francisco journalist. We'll put his quote up on the screen. He said, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're in even bigger pain the second time around. We have to own this problem. When someone says Christians are hypocrites, guess what you have to say? Jot this down. You are absolutely right. That's what you say. How do I keep the conversation going? It was like Those Christians, they're worth it. You are right. You've just got to own it. Do you know Christians? I know Christians. Sinful people. All of them. I'm a Christian and I'm a sinful person. Don't ever try and be like, you're wrong. No, we have to actually deal with the reality that the complaint they are filing is true. And it's true in the Bible as well. The church is full of sinful people. What I would say is, wait, hypocrisy? That's all you got? Oh, I can tell you stories of sin in the church. I can tell you stories that would blow your mind of how Christians treat each other, right? Or how they fake things or talk about God. I mean, every sin that's in the world is in the church too. So, that's all you got? Yes. Now, you have to maybe figure out what exactly their complaint is. Are they really upset about Christians who claim to be Christians, but they're really not Christians? They're fakes who've infiltrated the church? Or Christians who are really Christians, but they're kind of hiding it? They're living, they're trying to have it both ways. Um, Likely, there are people in their lives, maybe family members or close relatives or friends, who are annoying them. Maybe even these people are judging this person and making them feel lower and lesser Generally, there are valid things going on in the person's heart when they say this that you might want to help sort through. You have to admit, you know what, you're right. Whenever there's sin in the church, it destroys the credibility of our message. I mean, because, look, you're telling me one thing and you're living another thing. It makes it seem unlikely that I should follow that path. That's why Jesus hates it too. Now, there could also be a situation where a person says this and they have a genuine Christian in their life Who's really doing their best to walk with Christ, but they're of course imperfect. So if it's like, my brother, oh, Mr. Holy, and the brother's actually living out a Christian life, but this other brother just hates it, you might wanna discern if they're just really fault finding and nitpicking to try and tear another person down. That's a different situation. That person actually isn't a hypocrite, they're just a human that's really trying to walk with Christ, but the the other person, and maybe you feel like you've got these folks in your life, they're just watching you, and they're waiting for your kids to mess up. So they're like, ha-ha, you do it too. That's different, all right? Those Christians are not hypocrites, they're just human. It's important to sort through that. But there are genuinely people who claim the name of Christ who destroy other people, and it's a giant problem in the church. You're absolutely right. Um, Let's hit our fundamentals here. First John 1, 9 to 10 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make a, a liar and his word is not in us. You know what that means? It means to become a Christian, to be a member of a church, you actually have to admit you're a sinner. So, you know, the church is full of sinful people. That's the point. You're right. Every form of sin and every sinner is welcomed into the church. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, here's what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But get this. Do we have the next slide? And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's the thing, is that any sinner can become a Christian and leave that life of sin behind. You don't become perfect, there'll be a battle with sin, and you'll sin, you know, until Christ comes back. But people who maybe know your past, are like, oh, now you're going to church, are you? They want to kind of heap shame on you, and they might be confused. You might need to be like, hey, that's who I was, but Jesus is transforming me into somebody new. You are right. The church is full of sinful people. My recommendation when someone says the church is full of hypocrites is for you to get testimonial. You're right, but let me tell you how Christ is transforming me to talk about the hope that we find in becoming brand new, and then ask a question. Remember, the secret to any great conversation is to keep the questions coming. Jot this down. But where do you stand with God and Jesus? So you could say, you're absolutely right, but where do you stand with God and Jesus? All Christians are sinful because all humans are sinful. You're affirming a vital truth that we believe. People sin. And so where are you with God? Where are you with Jesus? Because sin is why God came and built the church to help people leave a life of sin. You're building common ground. The fact that they have a problem with immorality gives you a beachhead on which to land the truth of Scripture. You're upset about that? I'm upset about that too. So is God. Let's talk about the solution. Where do you stand with God and Jesus? The followers of Christ are nothing special. The founder is from heaven. I know you've got a problem with the followers. Where are you with the founder? He came from heaven. See, now this person has to start thinking about where they are with God. On Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to stand in God's presence and be like, oh, sure, I would have gotten ready to go to heaven, but my neighbor Flanders was so annoying. You know, like, You're not going to bring up a neighbor in judgment day. It's going to be you and God. Are you ready for that? The followers of Christ are nothing special. Romans 14, 10 to 12 really calls us out on this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God are you ready for that are you ready for that when no one else is around and it's just you and God hey where do you stand with God and Jesus affirm Christians there's a bunch of hypocrites you know you're right you are right but where do you stand with God and Jesus do you see how you just took a conversation that was like beep 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 and you're like zap and now you've got a chance to keep it rolling Where do you stand with God and Jesus? And then jot this down. You can ask the question, why let some Christians ruin the church for you? Why let some Christians ruin the church for you? At this point, if the person's still really engaged, it can go in a thousand different directions. We don't know exactly what their complaint is. They might even think that they are Christians and they're part of a church they just haven't been in a while. I don't need church. I just need God. Who knows where it's going to go? but listening is going to be the way to try and keep it moving forward, it's important to remind them that Jesus was infuriated with hypocrites. Hey, look, I'd hate for some Christians to ruin the whole church for you. Do you know Jesus was infuriated with hypocrites? Do you know that he was, Jesus was killed by religious people? In Matthew 23:27, here's what it says Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like, get this, ancient trash talk, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Wow, wow. Do you know how Jesus felt about the hypocrites? They're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Ah! He hated that. Hey, why would you let some Christians ruin the whole church for you, especially when Jesus is on top of this problem? He knows it. He doesn't want his church to be about that. So you see how you can keep the conversation going. Christians are hypocrites. Yep, you're right. But where do you stand with God and Jesus? Hey, why let some Christians ruin the church for you, especially when this was like... One of the major things that Jesus got all amped up about, he, he had his sternest warnings for the hypocrites of his day. If Jesus is a, as upset about this as you are, why would you let this keep you from him? You're reasoning with them to try and get them to give Christ and perhaps church a chance. Watch for an opportunity to go for the heart. They might be hurt. They might be upset. They might feel ashamed there may have been some Christians who just let them have it. They may have had some family members who were totally frauds, fakes, and set a terrible example for them. If you can get to the heart and kind of draw out, you know, the waters from the well, you might be able to really have a good shepherding conversation with this person. A lot of people have church pain, right, from the past, and you might be one of the first people to help them, you know, I kind of see it as like a hamper. They dump the hamper and then there's all this laundry and the stinky stuff's on the bottom. They've got all this stuff and you might need to help them sort through that. What's true, what's not, what can you get past, you know. Giving that a little attention could change a person's life. Well, there's only a two-point sermon. And you know, at the end of each one of these sermons, I give a chance for Q&A. So the mic's going to come out to you. So maybe you have a question where you're like, oh, I want to know how to talk about this Or maybe you know somebody who's asking a question and you're not sure how to respond. So get ready because the mic is coming out to you shortly. The second one we're going to deal with today, jot this down, is I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. Religious, charitable, helpful. You can fill in that many different ways. I'm a pretty charitable person. I'm a religious person. I'm a really helpful person. Hey, you need Jesus. He came into the world and died on the cross for you and he rose again and now he rules heaven. Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Guess what? The conversation just died. Because that person doesn't need Jesus. They're actually doing pretty well. They're religious. They went to the class. They're charitable. They give to the poor. They're okay. So no matter what you just told them about Christ, the conversation is over if you don't know what to say when someone's like, I'm good. I'm living life the way I think it should be lived. I'm going to be okay. Watch out. What do you say? You can turn to Mark 10 for this one, Mark chapter 10. This is again an, uh, a suggestion for you. Let's say you're at breakfast with, you know, a, a somebody, and you really want them to know about Christ, and they're getting curious, and they throw this one out. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Maybe they would be okay with you. Hey, can I share something in the Bible that I heard this? Maybe, maybe you have a re- relationship with that person where you could actually get the Bible open and share it. This is a good place to go. Mark chapter 10 uh, verse 17. Famous story, right, of the rich young ruler. As he was setting on his journey, a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit extra life? This guy was a little extra. Extra. As they say today, he was loaded, he was rich, he was young, he was excited, he ran up to Jesus and he fell on his knees. You know, people are watching. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is anyone tweeting this? <laughs> I mean, he's a little, you know, extra. Jesus said to him, you see how Jesus asked the question, why do you call me good? Good teacher. Would you say that that actually accurately encompasses all that Jesus is? Good teacher? Is he getting it right? Good teacher? Uh, He's a little more than that, but Jesus zeros in on this word. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Time to learn about God and man. God is good we are sinful. Okay, from the moment we were born. We're sinful by birth because we inherit a sin nature. When you buy a new laptop, imagine if components were corrupted at the factory. Okay, that's us. The hardware, the pieces we're made of, were bent to sin before we even came online. That's called, that's called inherited sin, a sin nature. But you might be like, well, that's not fair. Don't worry, because once the laptop is loaded, you go online and you download all the sin that you can find too, okay? <laughs> so it's by nature and it's by choice. We're sinful both ways. That's the doctrine of man. We are not good by nature. We are certainly not good enough to go to heaven. When it comes to God, he is good. He is the only one who's good. That fundamental definition of God and man is is being rejected when someone says, I'm a pretty good person. Now, you could come right out and be like, the Bible says no. But is that going to keep the conversation going? No. So how do we dig around, you know? Um, Jesus asked a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now the guy's got a choice to make. Is he ready to call Jesus God? Because no one's good except God. Do you see the question there? This many people who have walked the earth as a human are good. This many. And his name is Jesus. Okay? This many. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus has given him a chance. He's listing out a lot of the Ten Commandments, right? Right? And this guy's an achiever. So in verse 20, Jesus said to him, Teacher, I've kept all of these for my youth. Oh, he's picking the ones I'm good at. But Jesus left out some, right? Like coveting. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loves this. He's having a conversation with this guy. He said to him, you lack one thing. (gasps) What is it? The guy who's got everything. Oh, he's got... There's one thing I didn't buy on Amazon. Jesus is going to tell me what it is. (laughs) You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor. What? And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Okay, you're tracking here. What is the person missing? What's the one thing he's missing? Jesus. Who can give him treasure in heaven? So Jesus says, and he doesn't say this to everybody in the Bible, sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me. He's invited to get in the Bible as one of the inner circle followers of Christ. Do you know the, do you know the 12 apostles, their names are going to be written on the foundations of heaven? Come follow me, come follow me. And what was the guy's response? He was very sad, very sad. He goes home, what's the matter? I'm very sad. Why? I met Jesus. Oh, and I got in the Bible. Oh, and he told me I have to sell everything. <laughs> what an idiot, right? What an idiot. He was just offered treasure in heaven. What, what fine trinkets do you think in the ancient world he really wanted to hold on to? There wasn't an iPhone, I mean, today, it's like museum garbage. They probably wouldn't have even put, him stuff, put his stuff out in the Museum of Science and Industry. But he didn't want to let it go. He got Jesus wrong. Listen, if you get Jesus wrong, you lose everything in the next life. Because you're not good enough to get in. They would have assumed because he was loaded, he was blessed by God, because he was good, better than everyone else. They tied that prosperity, but he was dead wrong. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? With man it is impossible. And let me just pause here. I'm training you how to have a conversation with other people. Maybe you're here and you came into this room or you're online today and if you didn't wake up this morning and you were standing before the pearly gates right now, maybe your speech was going to be, I'm a pretty good person. I hope if you take nothing else from this morning, you'll hear this. You are not good enough to get into heaven and you never will be. With man, this is impossible. Just get a camel and get a needle and try and stick it through the eye of a needle. Okay, that's you trying to get into heaven with you. You can get maybe a hair through it. It won't, it won't work. But with God, all things are possible. Only God can get us into heaven. That's a good text to go to if someone says, I'm a pretty good, religious, charitable, helpful person. No, you're not. But how do we talk about this? I like what Abdu Murray said. Abdu Murray said, the fastest growing religion on earth is good personism. Good personism. Uh, It is antithetical to the gospel. If a person is relying on their own works, they're not relying on Jesus. Okay, so please, in your own heart, as the conversation's going, don't be like, well, they are a pretty good person. I mean, how how could God turn away Aunt Trudy? I mean, she's got 10 cats. She loves them all, you know? She's nice to animals. Don't let your mind get sucked into the whole, well, maybe she is good enough. It's not going to happen. Here's a question you can ask, jot this down. Do our good deeds erase our bad deeds? Do our good deeds erase our bad deeds? Let's say that they have done a lot of good. Okay, what does that mean about all the bad they've done? So, human courts understand this principle, die, drinks and drives, runs over a pedestrian who's now paralyzed for life, stands in front of the judge, and says, I pay my taxes on time. I clock into work every day. I do a good job. I give to goodwill. You shouldn't send me to jail. Do any of those good things take away the bad thing that he's done? See, so human courts get this. I don't care if you just went and gave popsicles to a 1,000 children out of the kindness of your heart. You still ran over somebody who's paralyzed for life you can't get rid of the bad by doing good, okay? So ask them, do our good deeds erase our bad deeds? When it comes to erasing, the idea there is that there's a stain. Sin stains. That's one image you could bring up. Jeremiah 2.22 says this, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Do you think our good deeds erase our bad deeds? I've shared this story before, and you can use it. Feel free to use it if you're talking to somebody. But I was at a wedding, and at this wedding I was super excited because they had a chocolate fountain. Have you ever used a chocolate fountain? They've got fruit and marshmallows, and you go up there, and you put things in the chocolate fountain, and you get to eat chocolate-covered things. I loved it. I was just standing up there, like, eating chocolate-covered everything. Well, then some other guy comes up and he wants to use the chocolate fountain too. He's wearing the brightest, whitest shirt I've ever seen. He's dressed really nice, so I step back and the chocolate fountain tips, and he catches it. And now the now he is the chocolate fountain. I mean, it's just his white shirt is ruined. The host of the wedding she runs up and they 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 you know pick it back up. She's giving him napkins. And I looked down and I realized that I had stepped on the cord. I had knocked over the chocolate fountain. So I just looked up and I turned and walked away. I just walked away. Okay, so the chocolate fountain guy, you know, that shirt is gone, you know, like tide isn't going to work. That's what sin does to us. So, hey, do you think our good deeds can erase our bad? Because the Bible says sin stains us. Getting that nailed down is a really important point. What you're doing is you're starting to talk about the nature of sin. Sin stains us. Um, When it comes to another way you can talk about it, you can talk about how dangerous the substance of sin is. And you can jot this down. This is a little bonus note. It's the nature of sin that makes it deadly in any amount. It's, the nat- it's not the amount of sin. Well, I only sinned a little. It's the nature of sin that makes it deadly in any amount. It's the kind of thing that it is. So here's another uh, story that I've shared, and feel free to use this to just be like, I know a guy, and this happened to him, but you could use it in your conversations. We went to a family party, and Lauren made brownies and put them in a glass pan. Uh, got to the party, put the glass pan Uh, downstairs, and it got knocked over. It fell, flipped, and landed face down on the uh, laundry room floor. She picked it up, and there was saran wrap (coughs) that covered it, but glass, little specks and medium specks of glass had cracked off the glass pan and had gotten on top of the brownies. Okay, do you think she said, well, it's just little pieces of glass, and served them to the children? Do you think she tried to pick off as many as she could and said, Well, there's not many pieces left? Why? Because it's the nature of the substance that makes it dangerous if it gets in you. Okay. So, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't think you're understanding the nature of sin, it's deadly in its smallest dose. Okay. You wouldn't put any glass in your body, any sin is destructive in your soul. Helping them to see the lethality of the substance of sin is very crucial. Do our good deeds erase our bad deeds? And jot this down, haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Now, now they've got a choice to make, because they might be like, no, okay, well then if they're sinless, they're God. So they've, they've got to admit it, yes. Sometimes people deny that they're sinful, I showed this video to the VBS kids this week, this is a boy whose dad is trying to warn him that he's misbehaving so he's not going to get any Christmas presents, he's got to get his act together, check it out. That's why you're on the naughty list. I swear, trust me. Well that's why you're on the naughty list, because you're being naughty right now, so you're going to be on the naughty list if you keep talking like that. No, No, because Father Christmas is not being very nice to me. Because you're being naughty, so you're on the naughty list actually you're not because you you're not because you ain't being good I am on a good list if you keep saying that word again and again and again I'm not on naughty list father christmas r- rung me last night when I was at work yes. and said you better tell jackson to start being a good boy or he's going to stay on the naughty list and he won't I'll get no presents for christmas that's what he said to me so you've got to start being a good boy then I'll do no, no you won't punch no, him You're just silly, man. You know, people might resist the idea that you're trying to help them see they're on the naughty list. Uh, Hey, haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Notice that you're asking a question. Haven't we all added to the sin of the world? This is where the Holy Spirit has to go to work. It's not your job to force a person's face into their sin. The Ten Commandments, idolatry, things that are far more important than God, taking the Lord's name in vain, honoring their father and mother, lying, stealing, coveting, adultery, just the big 10, we run the table, okay? We all break the 10 commandments. Then you get into their thought life, you know, the impure thoughts they've had, what happens when those come up on judgment day? Uh, People have secrets. They have things they've forgotten about in their past. This is all gonna come out on judgment day. So don't feel the need to try and prove to the person that they're sinful. The Holy Spirit and their conscience will do that. But haven't we all added to the sin of the world? One way that I've described this is, if at the end of the week God emailed you a record of your sin, it would be, you know, a pretty lengthy document. I don't know, 30, 40, 50 pages? Single space, your thoughts, your words, the things you should have done but you didn't. I mean, it would get up there, and then imagine if it was printed, and then by the end of the next week, it started to put it in boxes, and then you need kind of a dolly, because at the end of the month, you've got like four or five boxes of your entire record of debt, right? Then at the end of, you know, several months, you're like, boy, this room is full of the boxes, and at the end of the year, you're going to have to get, you know, a, uh, a storage unit. At the end of a decade, you need a warehouse, you need a warehouse. Your record of debt stands against you. I was telling this to a woman in our church years ago, and she was listening to me, thinking she could kind of confess line by line. And, and she said to me, so God wants to forgive my warehouse? I said, bingo. And she got saved, and she got baptized, because she understood God wants to forgive all of it, and she's done trying to keep a ledger of doing good and bad and good and bad Hey, haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says this. God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's great news, haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Hey, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, but do our good deeds erase our bad? No. Isn't it the nature of sin that makes it deadly in any amount? Haven't we all added to the sin of the world? Don't you need a Savior? Don't you need a Savior? And then remind them, jot this down. This is the big finish. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Are you a saved person? You might be surprised, this is what you'd say, you might be surprised to learn this, but the Bible says good people don't go to heaven. What? What? And guess what? Religious people don't go to heaven either. (gasps) Neither do charitable people. Oh, Well, then who goes to heaven? Saved people. Are you a saved person? This is the question. Are you a saved person? Do you see how you can keep the conversation going? Do you see how you can drive them to a place where you're not beating them over the head with truth and making them feel miserable? You know, when it comes to the questions we covered today, all Christians are hypocrites. Yep, you're absolutely right. But where do you stand with God and Jesus, and why let some Christians ruin church for you? I'm a pretty good person. I'm religious. I I live life in a virtuous manner. Yeah, but our good deeds can't erase our bad. Haven't we all added to the sin of the world? And the Bible says good people don't even go to heaven. Are you a saved person? Can you see how the conversation can keep going? That's our goal. When the conversation is kind of over, we want to learn to keep it going to give the person really hope that's found only in Jesus Christ. All right, well, each week we leave a little time for you to bring up your questions, and I would love for you to feel like church is a place where the toughest questions can be answered and addressed. So I'd love for you to ask a question maybe you have, or maybe someone in your life has. I need a runner. Jason, are you willing to be my runner again? All right, appreciate it. You should have worn running shoes today because they kept you moving. Put your hand up and Jason will come find you, and he will allow you to ask your question. go ahead. So I agree with you when you say that we're hardwired um, to be sinful, but how can we also say that we are wonderfully and fearfully made in the image of God? Yeah, so the doctrine of the fall is that God made us in his image. So where did sin come from? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tempted, and they fell into sin. Uh, And so that's where sin entered into the world. We were designed to reflect God's goodness and mercy and love, but we fell into sin. That's the fall. So God didn't design us to be evil. He didn't, he didn't make us broken. But we welcomed sin into the world. And remember, we all came from one person. Therefore, we don't think of life that way because we're all diverse and spread out around the world. But we all inherited a sin nature from Adam because we all came from him. So that's the nature of where sin comes from. Yeah. Okay, next question. Church is nothing but a cult. Oh, I like that one. Church is just a cult. You got to figure out what they mean. There are cults that have come out of the church. Um, they might just in general, feel like zealous faith in anything is just problematic. There are people who really believe that extremes are problematic. And if you're just really into anything that's kind of out there as spiritual, you're weird and and dangerous. Some people will see that as dangerous. You got to dig down. Do they feel like, religion is a source of oppression and violence in the world? Uh, Do they know people who've just really been captured by true cult stuff? Um, Or do they think we're all just duped, you know? You got to kind of figure out what exact complaint uh, they have. Um, But yeah, some people just dismiss it like it's just cult. You know, I don't want anything to do with anything extreme. Um, That's another conversation killer. Yeah, all right, Murph. Um, were were the members of the Church of Sardis ever really saved? Yeah, Jesus clearly said he described them as if they were in the process of verifying and authenticating their faith. So he said, "There's some who have not soiled their garments." Even you know, and he talks about blotting the name out of the book of life. That's very confusing imagery, and the way he's describing it as if they are right now verifying if they are in or if they are out. They have a big choice to make. Uh, And he's not the one doing it. They're the ones nailing down if they are sincerely. There's a lot of doctrine that we, I wish we had time to drill down into all of that. The good news is those who were truly, genuinely Christ followers in that church, listen to what it said. Their names are written in the book of life. They're given white garments and Jesus will speak their name to the Father in heaven. Don't you want to be a part of that group? I want to be a part of that group, even if there are knuckleheads who are faking it next to them. I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to focus on the guy who Jesus said, I'm going to tell his name to Father God and get him into heaven. That's what I want. That's what I want. Because there are those people in the church, I want to be like them. I want to be with them. And I want to go where they're going. It's the divide that we're supposed to, you know, focus on there. All right. Next question. Who's got one? Yeah. Right here, a Pastor. Uh, When I got saved the first thing um, I was worried that I was not saved right after that so um, My question is is that when someone is uh, claims to be saved or uh, Takes Jesus into their heart no matter how old they are and they get baptized um, What's the assurance of each one of us knowing that we're going to go to heaven? That's a wonderful question (laughs) Um, If you look in places like Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, if you read through the book of 1 John, uh, here's the general principles you'll find in Scripture. Uh, We believe in the eternal security of the person who's been converted by Christ. When it comes to what happens to a person who has genuinely put their faith in Christ, even at a young age, these are irreversible things. So being sealed with the Holy Spirit, uh, having your trespasses forgiven, having your sins wiped away, um, you know, being being united with the body of Christ. These are irreversible things if you're genuinely saved. So Ephesians 1 kind of talks about some of those things. Um, So if you are saved, you are genuinely saved for all time. But there are people who were not saved. They were Uh, made a decision as a child, but they didn't really understand or mean it. This is the parable where the bird comes and takes the seed away. Uh, There's even a parent salvation where you had something going on above the surface. You went to a church, you took a class, you sang some songs. The roots were never in place. Only God can sort through that. He, in fact, instructs us to not go through the church and to try and figure out who's a weed and who's a weed and who's a tear and whatever. The angels are going to do that. But when you get into God's word and you examine your heart, it says says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And it's not that you're looking for anything beyond the Bible. The Bible is enough where if you go through it and you're like, well, do I believe that about Jesus? Have I followed through? Have I been baptized and showed everybody that I'm a Christian? Then you have the uh, assurances of God's word. But if as you're going through it, you're like, not me, not me, not me, not me, then whatever else you were given growing up, you should just realize, holy cow, I don't have the fruit of salvation, right? And there are some who leave the faith, and in, in, you know, in the Bible it says, if if." If you apostatize, if you trample on under, the, under your feet, the, you know, the blood of Christ, there's only two things that means. Either you are a fallen Christian and God will judge you severely as a father does to his children uh, because you are departing from a biblical lifestyle, or you were never saved. Their going meant that they didn't belong to us, John says. Um, so it's not crystal clear. It's a case-by-case thing, but generally those are the principles that Scripture shares for that question about assurance of salvation. Got time for a few more. Um, so, what do you say um, when someone feels that they have multiple ways of, that people have multiple ways of getting to heaven? Um, because you were all different crayons in the crayon box, right? And so everybody's path can look differently. Right. Um, and addressing, right, Acts 4, 12, there's no, no other way, but Seeing practically that lives look differently. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Last week we did All Religions Teach the Same Thing. If you missed that sermon, you'll want to catch it. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, So, you know, some people might complain, well, why wouldn't God make multiple ways? If you're on the Titanic and there's a boat big enough for everybody to get on, I'm going to get off the Titanic. I'm not going to say, well, I want five more ways to get off the Titanic. It's like, oh, there's a way off? I'm getting off. <laughs> so uh, the fact that there is one way is clear. It's compelling. Uh, it's consistent. So, um, And that's what the Bible teaches. There, there is just one way, uh, Christ. Okay, a couple more. Who's got the mic? You got the mic, and then you're next. Thank you, Pastor. Um, yeah. I have a question about prayer. I prayer? Know prayer. God delights in our prayer. Yeah. But If we continue to pray for, say, something certain, or you get a lot of people praying on the same thing, does God change his mind? No, he doesn't change his mind. So he already knows what we're going to do. Okay. That's my question, I guess. So there's gears. I preached a sermon called Prayer Gears. Maybe we'll post that one online, too. Uh, Here's the way it works. Bold. God wants you to pray boldly. Big. Stop praying for chicken nuggets to be blessed. It's not going to happen. That's actually a pretty bold prayer. Uh, Bold. Bold. If you ask this mountain to go into the sea, bold, right? And um, so after you have bold, you have confident. Whatever you ask, believe you have. Ha- you have it. Confident. We're supposed to pray confidently, right? Humbly. Not my will, but yours be done. Bold, confident, humble, lovingly, lovingly. We're supposed to pray in love, right? The, there's a warning um, to husbands if you don't love your wives, it hinders your prayers. So your love relationships have to be in order. And then persistently, the persistent widow, ask, seek, knock. These are the prayer gears, and you could remember them by this acronym, because he loves people. Bold, right? Uh, confident, humble, loving, persistent. Those gears all have to be turning. And the, here's the problem. when you, you get a problem when some of the gears fall out, or you only have one gear turning. So if someone's like, well, God already knows what's going to happen, um, so I'm just going to trust him. Well, that's confident, but it's not very bold, right? It's, it's humble, but it's not very bold. So where's the bold? Where's the you have not because you ask not? See what I'm saying? So you can't take gears out of it. Um, you have to have all the gears turning. Yeah, so hope that helps. All right, this will be the last one, but if you didn't get your question asked, I'll be up front. Uh, you can come up after the service. Do you have the mic? Okay, go for it. Okay, my question involves like in today's society Christians are called hypocrites a lot because I feel like non-believers don't agree with what we believe sin is. For example, love is love. Right. Jesus loves everybody. So how this is like an onion, you're peeling back each week. But when somebody comes with an issue like love is love, I say yes, I agree and I love all people of all communities, however I don't love the sin. But when they don't agree that that's an actual sin, where do you go in the conversation from there? That's a great one. Uh, the topic is morality, so they're making a moral statement. And you can ask them this question, where do you think morals come from? And what they'll genuinely generally start with is, well, your feelings. And so if you feel something is right, then it's good for you. Then you can very easily push back on that and say, well, there are plenty of people who feel like it's right uh, to go clubbing and slip a chemical in a woman's drink and, you know, have some fun with her that night. That feels really good. Is that right or wrong? Well, of course it's wrong. Okay. So uh, when it comes to morals, where else do morals come from? It's not just if I feel like it's going to be good, I can do it. Well, you can't hurt other people. Right. Okay. So now we're getting somewhere. So if you do something that hurts another person, you're not allowed to do that, right? The more you start pushing down that road of true love is actually being accountable for the good and welfare of another person, it's not about you. Love is not about you. Defining love as me doing everything I want, that's the opposite of love. That's the most selfish thing you can say, right? I'm going to love me. That's not love. You're giving them a bigger view of love, right? The problem is they're afraid that you're taking it away from them. They think you're stealing something from them, their identity. You're trying to help them see that the true greatest form of love is Christ's love because he laid down his life to save the world. And love is sacrificial. It's for the good of the other person. It's not for us. Life is not for us. And when they can finally see that they're here to love other people and to sacrifice for them, and then they look up and see, and to take up your cross daily to serve Christ, you will redefine the word love for them. That's the goal. Their view of love is very selfish and small. You're trying to redefine that and help them to see that. Yeah, but, but very patiently and very kindly just helping them to open up to see uh, how they're defining that word love. Never feel like Christians lack love. Our view of love saves the world in Christ. Never feel like the world is out loving you. Okay, love is not their thing. Love is Christ's thing. And we have the greatest force in human history is the love of Christ. I'll end on that. Let's uh, have the worship team come back up here. And then if you have any questions that didn't get answered, you can come up um, and you can ask at the end of the service. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for all the questions that people have asked today. And I just pray that by your spirit, you would give us divine appointments this week so that we can share our faith with other people. We want to learn how to do it with courage, with compassion, with clarity. Uh, We're not good at this. Father, so we, we're asking you to help us and we're asking you to help us find our voice because we know people desperately need to hear about the love of Christ. We know that, Jesus, you came into the world to save sinners. And that's who we are. We're saved sinners and we're just, as somebody said before, one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. So help us to have that humility and that grace when we go out and give us divine appointments this week. In Jesus' name, amen.